You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Venizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. Remember, you're not a minority, you're a majority in Christ. So whether our battle is of the military, moral, or spiritual sort, we must be bold. We must be prepared. And by the way, how, how are we prepared for the battle? Well, just make sure that you're in the Word of God, that sharp two-edged sword. Make sure you're armed with that, right? all of the wonderful resources that God has made available to you. Use whatever resources are available to you. There's a spiritual battle taking place all around you, even though you can't always see it. Today, Pastor Mike will be exhorting you to put on the full armor of God and to make sure you're prepared for battle. If you're not making an eternal difference in the lives of others, most likely you're not experiencing much spiritual warfare. The best tactic for the enemy to use is to allow you to continue being complacent rather than attack. If you're a Christian, you need to get in the fight. Now, here's Pastor Mike in the book of Genesis chapter 14 as he continues his message, A Call to War. When Abraham is successfully returning from defeating this Eastern Confederacy, he is confronted by this interesting character who we are introduced to as Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High, who most people believe, and I would be included in that group, was none other than a Theophanes or an appearing of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And I just want to simply back that up before we even read that text of Scripture by what is declared for us in the book of Hebrews. When Jesus is being depicted and presented to us as our great high priest, in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 6, referring to Jesus, the Scriptures tell us there that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So I personally believe, as well as many other Bible teachers and commentaries, that Melchizedek, this encounter that Abraham had as he's returning successfully from this battle, with this interesting character, Melchizedek, out of the blue, right, is none other than Jesus Christ himself, a theophanies, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. So with that said, let's go ahead and read verses 18 through 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, and take note of this, 
Blessed be Abraham of God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So, what do we have here then? Well, God himself, through his priests, whether it's Jesus or not, declares Abraham had done the right thing, and that he, that is God, had given him the victory. You see that? Listen, Abraham could have found lots of reasons not to fight, not to seek to deliver his nephew Lot from his faith. As I mentioned before, he could have taken a fatalistic kind of a, an approach and uh, you know, thought, well, you know, we live in this kind of a world, and these things are going to happen. They're inevitable. Now, is that the same kind of a position that any of us as Christians should take? You know, when sin seems to be making these great advances in, the, in this generation in which we live? You know, are we to just take the same kind of a position as this fatalistic approach and do nothing about it? I mean, after all, we live in that kind of a world, and things are only going to get worse. So what should we do? Just sit idly by? Sit on our hands and do nothing? Right? I mean, after all, it's inevitable. I mean, if God are, is allowing these kings to conquer the cities of the Dead Sea Plain, well then, who am I to do anything about that? Is that the right position to take as a Christian? I don't think so. Here's another reason Abraham uh, could have chosen not to go to war. Uh, just simply thinking that it wouldn't have been a prudent action on his part. It wouldn't have been prudent for him to get involved. I should just stay where I am in my mountain sanctuary. They don't know that I'm here. For if they did know that I was here, they would have extended their conquests to include me. You know, so we see that, for example... Let's bring this down to spiritual terms. We see the church and other parts of the world that are suffering. Are we, are we called or are we responsible to do anything that we can possibly do to alleviate that suffering? Or when we hear about our brothers and sisters in another state that have been devastated by some kind of a natural disaster and their facilities have been destroyed, you know, should we pick up and go to help our brothers and sisters? But let's, let's bring this down to real personal terms. How about if there's someone here in our own fellowship who's suffering, that we become aware of their suffering? You know? Uh, is it wise to get involved? You know? No one knows that I'm here. I'm just going to you know, live my Christian life. Uh, I'm going to do the things that I need to take care of for me. And it doesn't matter what's going on in the life of my brother or, or sister. Are we responsible for the members of our family, the family that God has given us in Christ? If they, Abraham could have thought, if I attack them, I'll become their enemies, and I can be sure there will be a next time, and I will be a part of that next time. You know, how difficult it, is, it might be for us to get involved, you know, to put ourselves out there. What's at stake? We're going to be drawn in. It's going to take some of our time, our energy. It might take some of our resources, right? It's better not to get involved. No one knows that I'm here. I'm just going to live out my Christian life in a bubble, you know, kind of a thing, and not get involved. It's sort of like creating a Christian subculture where I alone live. Or how about this? He could have reasoned this out and, and chose not to 
enter into this conflict thinking, hey, you know what? Lot is just simply getting his just deserves. I mean, this is a part of God's judgment upon Lot. We know that there are consequences when we choose to disobey God, when we turn our back upon God. And therefore, Lot was just simply getting his just deserves. You see, Lot chose foolishly, and it was true, he did choose foolishly, to throw in with the wicked. So therefore, he deserves what he gets. That's all there is to it. Praise God, hallelujah, how spiritual, how pious, how wrong. How wrong. I want you to think about this. How many of us, at times, in our own Christian experience, have chosen just as foolishly as did Lot? You see, Abraham did not think like this. Yes, this battle between these two forces and their history was of no concern to him in and of itself, but again, here's the part of the equation that drew him in. It affected his nephew Lot. You know, what are the things, and, and again, let's bring this down to personal terms and think about our own fellowship and, and protection and providing for one another and being there for one another. This is the family that God has, has given us, and we are responsible one for another. Yes, Lot may have been foolish to move into Sodom, but who of us, as I've already suggested, haven't made a foolish decision in our lifetime? Equally unwise. And Abraham could certainly relate to that. As I mentioned before, Abraham went down to Egypt during the time of famine in the land of Canaan. And we know how that worked out for him, right? You see, Abraham couldn't be a Cain who said, when confronted by God, when he was asking about him, am I my, bro am I my brother's keeper? You see, Abraham, in fact, was Lot's keeper, even as we are our brother and sister's keeper. Lot was in trouble, and it was Abraham's duty before God and man to act to rescue him. You see, faith makes us independent, yes, but it doesn't make us indifferent to suffering. If a brother is taken captive, let's say, for example, we we become aware of uh, one of our brothers or sister getting caught up in some sin or going back into the world or, or whatever, we'll arm ourselves instantly and go in pursuit. And in a crisis, we draw strength from God. And in doing that, you can be sure that the victory will be won. The victory is ours. And so, seeking to answer the question, should Christians fight gang there are times when we must. On many different fronts, wherever there is injustice, brutality, human suffering, the weak need to be defended. God help us to rise to the occasion. Now, one last thing, and this may be even be the, and it's just a short little lesson for you. Just wanted to throw it in at the end of this message this morning. But I think that probably this is the most significant part of this message. So one last thing, and that is the battle always is God's. So don't ever be frightened. You know, don't take any of those suggestions of why Abraham, you know, may have thought, I'm not going to 
enter into this battle, and then the reasons that I suggested for you, don't ever be afraid. Don't ever shy away from, don't shrink from your responsibility as a Christian. Remember, the battle is the Lord's. You're just the instrument through which God is going to work. So here, Abraham pursued the four kings of the east, and he rescued Lot. Now let's trace his steps. News had come to Abraham concerning what had happened, the invasion of this confederation of kings. News had been brought back to him concerning how that his nephew Lot had been taken. Thus he calls for his trained men, the 318. He divides his force and makes a surprise attack by night, which was, by the way, a wise move. Because in the night, they didn't know who attacked them. They had absolutely no idea that Abraham and his armed men even existed in that part of the world. So they didn't know who attacked them or how many attacked them. And in the confusion, in the darkness, they were routed. He recovers the goods and the captives. A shrewd battle plan, yes, Abraham is a brilliant commander, yes. But Abraham was a victor only because of God's sovereign will and power. And I'm absolutely sure that Abraham knew this, that the battle wasn't his, but rather the battle was the Lord's. You know, this reminds me of another conflict, another battle, another man whom God worked through, Uh, to bring victory to his people, Israel, a guy whose name was Gideon. And we're first introduced to Gideon in the book of Judges in chapter 6. Let me give you just a quick little background, a little picture. The Midianites, you know, Israel by this time, because they had turned their backs upon God, were defenseless. Up until that point of walking with God, you know, God was their refuge. God was their strength. God was their high tower. God went before them in battle. And, uh, and no enemy could stand before Israel because of that. But now they had turned their back upon God. And so God raised up this race of people, the Midianites. And what they would do, really smart, uh, they would wait for uh, Israel during a certain time of the year. During the harvest, the Midianites would come up into the land of Israel They were depicted like locusts. There were so many. And they would plunder the land and leave none of the resources for Israel. So Israel would do all of the work. The Midianites would come, and they would actually rape the land. They would plunder the land. They would take all of the resources, all of the food, and and nothing would be left for Israel. Now, when we're first introduced to Gideon, he's down in the basement threshing the wheat. And you don't thresh wheat in a basement. It has to be in an open air kind of a a setting because the wind carries the chaff from the wheat as it's beat on the floor of the threshing floor. And so all of a sudden, the angel of God, whether it was actually an angel of God, we're just told the messenger of God, or it was another another Theophanes, it might have been Jesus Christ, you know, comes, and this is the way that he greets Gideon. And I always found this to be kind of comical. He says, oh, thou... Man of valor. Man of valor. He's hiding in the basement. He's threshing the wheat in the basement. 
He's very concerned about his own welfare, his own being. You know, the Midianites are in the land. When the angel or the messenger or whether or not it was Jesus greeted him in that way, he probably turned around to see if there was someone standing behind him. Because the last thing we could consider Gideon was a man of valor through which God was going to work. Well, anyway, picking up in that story, let me give you a couple of cross-references. In the book of Judges in chapter 6 and verses 14 and 16, then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours, and the might, by the way, was the Lord's, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And then in verse 16, so he said to him, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So he didn't feel as if there was anything within him that lent himself, you know, to take the initiative upon himself to lead Israel against the Midianites to be uh, victorious in this, in this battle, you know, in this conflict. Well, anyway, nevertheless, the, he sends out the, the news of what was taking place. And initially, we are told that 32,000 of the Israelites came forward to engage in this battle. And then God looked over this very impressive group of 32,000, and he said to Gideon, listen, Gideon, you know, that's uh, too many men that's come forward. And if you defeat the Midianites, they're going to be thinking that you were victorious on the basis of the number of people that went out into the battle. So just say to them, listen, uh, you know, any of you guys who just want to go home, just go your way. You don't have to engage in the battle. And then the, it was whittled down to 22,000. And then uh, the 22,000 went down to drink the water out of the river. And those that went into the water and drunk but kept their eyes up you know, to be careful to watch for and against their enemies, there was only 300. And so God said to Gideon, by the 300, I will uh, defeat the Midianites. And everyone else was dismissed from the battle. And you know the story, right? They, they took the pictures with the, the candles in them, and they lit them and by night, and they all cried out together at once. And, and the Midianites didn't know what was going on. They surrounded the camp with these torches, with these pitchers, with the candles in them, and, and they all cried out at one time, and, and they surrounded the camp of the Midianites. They were outnumbered. I mean, thousands of Midianites. Uh, again, as I mentioned before, they, they were recommended to us as so great a number like locusts that had come into the land. And in all of the confusions, they drew their swords, and they begin to, in the darkness, they begin to fight against each other until finally they defeated themselves, you see. It was God who enabled Gideon, Abraham, to be successful in their battles. So Gideon wasn't victorious because of the size of his army, 300, you kidding me? He wasn't victorious because of the 300 being trained in precision, no. They, he didn't get the victory because of the deployment of a great number of soldiers. So how do, we, how do we come to the conclusion of why that he was successful? And it has to be directly traced right back to the Lord. Gang, this is the spirit in which the Christian 
must fight. So whether our battle is of the military, moral, or spiritual sort, don't shrink from that responsibility. When you become aware of something that needs to uh, be addressed, whether it's for your brother or your sister or your next-door neighbor or your city or your state or your country, the government in which we live, whether it's suffering, wherever, the downtrodden, you know, don't shrink from that responsibility. Don't think I can't make a difference either, you know. Remember, you're not a minority, you're a majority in Christ. So whether our battle is of the military, moral, or spiritual sort, we must be bold. We must be prepared. And by the way, how, how are we prepared for the battle? Well, just make sure that you're in the Word of God, that sharp two-edged sword. Make sure you're armed with that, right? All of the wonderful resources that God has made available to you. Use whatever resources are available to you. Uh, influence. You know, you know so-and-so. You know, if something's going on in your city. Uh, you know the mayor. Go to the mayor. Make that stand for righteousness. Let your voice be heard. Whatever. Right? But above all, we must go in the strength of God. One of the other greatest battles that is recorded for us in the Bible is that between David and Goliath. Right? the champion of the Philistines, and uh, Goliath of Gath. And, you know, uh, on one occasion, when Jesse, David's father, had sent David ahead to see how his brothers were faring on the front, and he brought them some bread, some resources for them uh, to eat, on one occasion, he heard the champion of the Philistines, chiding the people of God. And he was absolutely blown away. At this time, Saul was shaking in his boots. He was hiding in his tent. He certainly wasn't going to come out and face the champion of the Philistines. And so David comes forward and he says, you know, let me go out against this uncircumcised Philistine. And so finally he comes, and you can just see the Philistine, man. He's like... You know, sword joint, he's going to go out there, he's going to, you know, he's going to just chop David into pieces. And I love what David said, and it's recorded for us in 1 Samuel in chapter 17 and verse 47. He says, it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is of the Lord. Remember that. The battle is of the Lord. And it doesn't matter what kind of a giant you're up against, standing against. Remember that. The battle is of the Lord. And thus, you're bulletproof. You're invincible. Always take that into account. In my Father's house There's a place for me In my Father's house Where I long when something gets close to an ending, we naturally turn our attention to the beginning. When a child is about to graduate, we look at baby pictures. When a beloved spouse of many years grows close to death, we go over the story of how we met. When we pack up our stuff and move away from a house, we remember the first times we walked in the door. And as we draw close to the end of days, 
it seems only fitting to return to in the beginning. We can watch as light is created in land and sea and all the creatures, day and night in the sun and moon. And when we take a look at the glorious and amazing creation of the world, we can remember that it's the same God from the beginning who is ruling over the end. We can watch in awe, remembering that the end is also good news as we eagerly await His return. And here at In My Father's House, we're so glad you've decided to spend your day with us. In My Father's House is a ministry out of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Midtown Manhattan. It's easy to get here with access from Port Authority and Penn Station on 34th. We'd love to see you. Pop over to our website, harvestnyc.org, to find times and so much more. And if you feel compelled to partner with this ministry financially, there's a link for that as well. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. While you're there, take a look around to find additional audio, a link to our Vimeo and podcast. That's all we have time for today. We've loved spending time with you, and we can't wait to meet up with you again. See you next time here in my father's house. <laughs>